You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and I'm going to start under these extraordinary circumstances with a quick shout out to everyone that's joined the Insiders Club in the last week uh, since the world has been on fire. Um, A huge love to Charlie Dunlop, BJ Mander, uh, Yucca Talvio, Stuart Jordan, Ned Baker, Anna Bryson, Chris Davies and Rob Chapman, uh, all of whom have signed on as new subscribers uh, at a time when the live comedy circuit is transforming painfully into something very different and very not live. And there's an awful lot of economic uncertainty amongst all the self-employed, amongst everyone, um, but specifically those of us who aren't salaried in any way. So I just wanted to say a huge thank you to all of those uh, and as well an extra special mention to Jenny Stringleman, Natalie Hargrave and Andres Purdy, all of whom uh, upped their existing donations. I'm so knocked out by that, not just uh, in terms of paying my rent, um, but just as a gesture, I really, really appreciate that. So thank you very much to those. If you would like to join the Insiders Club, you can do that at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. There has never been a better time to join, not to mention the fact that you're going to get a load of extras, over 30 minutes of extras from this forthcoming episode, forthcoming in the sense of any second now, with the brilliant Desiree Birch. She's so wonderful. I I didn't know her really well at all, um, and I was so lucky to be working with her at the Cape Town Comedy Festival. Desiree is from LA and uh, has been sort of resident, semi-resident in the UK, living between America and, and the UK. Uh, for a while now, uh, she kind of made a real impact on me. I saw her poster, which we'll talk about later on, uh, her poster for her first ever show, which was her face. And if you looked closely, you realised it was made up of hundreds of tiny dick pics. Um, That's the kind of comic mind we're dealing with, which is not to uh, in any way downplay her phenomenal writing ability, her fluency, and how incredibly articulate she is. And just as well, because she talks very fast. We're going to get stuck into this conversation about the protective shell of comedy, uh, finding acceptance but to white standards, and what it means to seek connection within comedy and within art and the world. And I think we could all use connection at the moment. Um, You know, well, I'll talk to you in the post, Amble, about the uh, horrific and very frightening state of the world at the moment. All of us are, are currently 
just shaking our heads in disbelief and veering wildly between calm and terror. But in the meantime, the show must go on, not least because uh, I need to eat. So (laughs) with that in mind, here is an episode recorded uh, a couple of weeks ago and consequently before we in uh, Britain at least uh, knew just how serious the pandemic was going to be. Let's take, uh, if not a walk down memory lane, then uh, a creative exploration of the sort you come here for uh, with the fabulous Desiree Birch. your gigs been we've only done two but yes well, how have you found it? yeah it's only two that's right i can't you know the whole comedy thing when you get lost and people are like what'd you do yesterday you're like what was yesterday i have to look at my diary like i have no idea what is happening because our lives are so just sort of scattershot day and night this and that i think it's been two gigs so far they've been good and interesting i'm starting to sort of relax into the festival and being like oh yeah that's right they're here i'm here because they want me you know what i mean like oh did, did you do have that sense of like of, am i in the right place yeah, yeah, I mean, l- less so, but also always, you know, like there is that thing that I, I'm always um, honored to be on podcasts like this because uh, I'm uh, a comedian. I think I'm a good comedian, but there are times when I'm like, am I a comedian? And sure, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. And I wonder how many of us have that sort of sense about it because. Um, uh, my pet theory is all of us apart from Jimmy Carr. I, th- <laughs> I, think, I honestly think that all of us at some point. Apart yeah. from probably Jimmy. Yeah, exactly. Uh, kind of go. He did way down somewhere in a compartment, in a drawer, in a room, in a safe somewhere. Had that. Perhaps. Yeah, I think. Um, but yeah, so they have been going well. I mean, I think that the, yeah, obviously the festival is building back up to, you know, because it was on a hiatus. And so I think, you know, the audiences are figuring out what the heck is going on and we're figuring them out. It's great to be doing comedy in a place that is diverse in a lot of different senses, mm-hmm. obviously. We both work a lot in the UK and other places and, you know, London audiences are one thing and, you know, anywhere else in the UK is a different thing. Sure. And so it's <laughs> it, honestly, it's it's really nice. Like I, whenever I go back to the States, I usually fly back into New York, not always, but usually. And so it's just that thing of being on the tube and seeing, you know, and being like, OK, I'm brown and going onto the subway in New York and being like, no one in here is white. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) You know, and it's just a different, it's a thing that I don't realize that I am thirsty for or miss until I get it and go, oh yeah. And it's not necessarily even about like, oh, everyone's like me. I think that comedy is better when not everyone's like you, but when everybody is sort of mixed and people are responding to different things, like people respond differently to you at different times and they're listening to each other respond to you. And that sort of creates the triangle of the conversation of like, you know, I, start to understand more about what I'm not laughing at and somebody else is and I now understand more about them without having had that conversation yet it's sort of an entree into conversations about things which is why I think comedy is a good way to help facilitate those so anyway that is a long aside to say the festival has been going well and I'm easing into it a little bit more I'm like oh that's right I get to play around with what I'm doing this week and so like I'll change it up tonight or you know whatever yeah yeah so something that will be immediately apparent to the listener yeah. is that you are on turbo, right? Yeah. Like you talk fast, right? I talk fast and too much and I don't breathe. And so, you know, I, my you voice feel, could benefit do, from that. Do you feel you talk too much or do you feel that you talk the appropriate amount? I don't know that I talk too much. I think that I don't. Um, 
I think that this, uh, the way that I speak is a holdover from, I mean, everything about our personality is a holdover from like our youth and our trauma and all Mm. that other stuff. But I think that I tend to, once I get the reins, hold on to them because I don't necessarily trust that I, if I allow for even a breath that I will continue to have them. I think part of that is the general thing of being a woman and being sort of like not listened to, cut off, whatever, la la la, that sort of la la la. But like we've all sort of (laughs) talked about that a little bit. It, you know, and also being a middle kid that was just sort of like, I exist, like, ah, and I, it's something that I would like to work on about myself because I would like to breathe more. I think that would be good for me as a human being and just for everything. Um, and as a comic as well, because sometimes people really love that energy, but it's a thing that you have to ride, right? Because sometimes yeah. it's just enough and sometimes it's so much the words aren't coming out and they're not understanding or it seems like you're nervous or, you know, and it, it's all of those things, but it is about riding that, you know, it is its own drug adrenaline and that kind of thing that you're putting out when you do comedy and you have to find your way of of you know writing it as opposed to letting it ride you yes are there times when you feel it riding you yeah i think that yeah i I, you know and it just depends on the night and the show sometimes you know obviously if you uh the longer you've done comedy the more you can play off any scenario and other people will be like, that was great. And you'll be like, yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> but, you know, because for you, it's it's a thing of like, ah, oh, I, I let whatever was going on in my head or the timing or whatever the day get a hold of me more than I would have liked um, to okay. have done. And so I, I feel that I am someone who uh, probably got to performance and comedy because, I mean, one, because I'm funny and that was a survival skill I developed pretty early on in life. And also because uh, I, like many of us, am a secret control freak. And so uh, as a comedian or an artist, writer, you know, actor, whatever, you get to control the narrative a bit more, right? And so if I'm putting the words out and the ideas out, I get to control the narrative about me. And I'm like, no, don't look at me the way that I can feel you looking at me. Look at me the way I'm telling you to look at me. Yes, gotcha. And sometimes that controlling thing, you know, it only takes you so far. It's, you know, it's rocket boosters. It gets you out there, but you can't orbit or be free or explore if you're constantly on that, you know, sort of uh, Yes, you're launching. If yes. you're always trying to achieve always escape launching. velocity yes. you're like, like that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And it's like you've already escaped and now you're just shooting off into nowhere and soon you'll be out of the gravitational pull and that's not what you want. It's not what we want. Like we want you to hover around and be here and so I think that learning anything takes a while right and sometimes you get it right and you're like I got it and then the next time you screw it up and you're like okay I guess I didn't get it like you always have to prove over and over again that you've learned the thing or that you can further master or just exist in that thing and so for me I think that's one of the things that I want to um, grow in more as a performer is just the trust that I deserve to be here, which I know I do because I've been doing this, you know, in some form or another, like, you know, theater or solo performance comedy for like over half my life. But at the same time, there's like a six year old who like doesn't know that yet. And I'm just like, bitch, get it together. Like (laughs) we got other stuff to do. So, yeah. Have you, have you made any conscious efforts or experiments to, try to slow down to like or or to do a gig where you go okay it's going to be escape velocity for five minutes and then i'm going to change gear and 
see if you can achieve the same sort of impact with a different pace. You know, that sounds like a good idea. No, I'm kidding. Um, I have done so. I mean, sometimes it is about how you structure the set. Sometimes, you know, because you're mixing things, you know, and sometimes uh, usually the best anyone feels as a comic, and I'm, I'm probably generalizing, but one of the best times is when you're doing new material, right? Oh, yeah. Because oh, yeah. Because it is the, like, failure is expected, Right. And putting that in your mind of like, oh, you're going to fail at some point or several points is great to just be like, okay, great. Let's put all of that other like I need to make sure that I do this killing thing every single time or whatever. I need to be the best. I need to overachieve this gig, whatever it is in your head. Put that aside and be like, I'm really excited to say this one line. Like, I, you know, I've written all these things, but I'm really excited to say this thing. So. I think that when I put the measures in place, sometimes it's about being like, okay, I know I need to start with something that makes them trust that they're going to have a good time and they're going to laugh, you know, and if you make them wait too long for that, then they're like, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you get to a place somewhere in the rhythm where you're like, okay, well, this bit, I'm just trying it out. Let's see. I can play. I can talk to them and, and trying to you know, structure in fun playtime in yeah, there, yeah, you know, yeah. like, a, you know, parent yourself a little bit and it is good. I think the other time it happens is when you've done like an Edinburgh run or some other thing where you've done the thing a lot in a row and mm-hmm. it is in your muscles. And then at that point, you either know when the laughs tend to come, you know, and so you know that you can pause and rest in certain places, like you know where your pit stops are on the road trip that you're mm-hmm. on, and you're like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, I'm going to get to this place, and then we'll sit there and have lunch. Um, or you're like, oh, I actually... It's when you've done a thing a million times, and you're like, oh, I actually want to play here, you know, and remembering that it's play and remembering that it's comedy and remembering that it's funny for them or fun for them if it's funny and fun for you as well as opposed to getting in that part of your head where it's like there are expectations to be met and I've got to do the big report at you know demonstration at the conference and this is high stakes and you know like there's so many times when I have to be like Desiree it's not brain surgery it like no one lives or dies You know, if you, you know, you don't even live or die, even if you die on stage. It's like, okay, you get a taxi right after the gig, you go home, you watch some Netflix the next day is the next day. So like, you know, just I have to do these weird sort of mechanisms in my head to be like, let's take it down a notch because this is supposed to be fun for you and me. I'm making this sound like it's so difficult, but like, you know, it is comedy, but it is a thing that like, you know, people either think like, that's a job or oh my god I could never do that you know there's nothing in between and I think it's up to us sometimes to be like it it can be in between sometimes like it can be I'm going to work I have good days at work I have great days at work I have bad days at work I have horrible never again days at work and like all of those are going to come so let's just be present for today and see what I can do today. And that's a good Zen mindset to have. I'd like to pretend I have that all the sure, time. Yeah, yeah. I don't. A, I just need to remind myself yes, to do yes, that. Yes. You know? That's a good kind of affirmation, isn't it? To yes. kind of something that's like a, the, what I like about that is you're sort of seizing control or it's an attempt to seize control of the absolute storm of one's personality in yeah. the, in the, in the storm of comedy and like you know the 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 massive lack of consistency or yes. r- uh, rhythm sometimes you know that it actually it's 
nuts as his life yes. but it's it's an examined life and it's a yes. projected you know performed heightened kind of expression of life it's nuts and it's constantly zigging zigging and zagging in every direction so actually to have something of a mantra and go this is a day at work some yes. days at work are good some days at work are bad yes that seems like a sensible and to put it back into a realm of in which it makes sense because it is you all the time which is what many other people don't have to deal with in their work Right, where it's oh, like that's a really good point. Yeah, selves all the time. I think that's why a lot of people go, "Oh, I could never do that," because it really is the examined self and presenting themselves, and you know, turning inside out on a regular basis. Even if you have rehearsed it a million times, like, "Oh, yeah, 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 yeah," like you're putting it into this place where it's like, "I'm." This is a story of myself that I can tell, so it's separated from myself, but there are still tethers, like there's still an umbilical cord feeding that, and yeah. like when that thing is rejected, that's why all the feedback comes through that chord and it hits you in your soul because it was your soul that you put out there even if you did it in this very sort of you know dead butterfly pressed <laughs> sort of form yeah, yeah. you know it's still connected to a life force that is you and that you have to live with so yeah I don't know it is important to manage that like we do take for granted and because we have this comedy protective shell of defense that we've learned for whatever reasons to have and then to manipulate for the benefit of others you know but it's still connected to something that's still alive even if it's like buried so yes I, yeah yes you well that's the second time you've kind of made reference to a kind of a protective thing you said before that it was kind of talking and talking fast as a survival skill yeah what sorts of things were you surviving oh god yeah I know I made it sound like I was growing up in a war torn <laughs> no not like, at all no. no 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 there's all sorts of things, things you could have been surviving yeah no I think that um, I so let's see I'm like where to begin because I feel like it's the things that like you talk about all the time but like I would love to be able to present that sort of honestly and directly in this time um, this moment, but I think so. Uh, for me, um, I uh, where do I start? So I'm uh, kid three of four, uh, uh, you know, middle child, which I think middle children. Oh yeah, if that. you're three of four, you've even got to fight to be the middle. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're right. One of two yes, middles. Exactly. Yeah, okay. Exactly. And I, I, I was, um, you know, very studious child. I was uh, always a fat kid, which is like a sort of like fat kids are funny because that's the way people don't tell you to like go away and die, you fat fuck. You know what I mean? Like I, that's just what you get, and you get it from your family before you even go to school. Do you okay. know what I mean? Like, your family is the one that's like, we got to fix you. What's wrong with you? It's like, you know, like, first of all, you have too many feelings. Why do you have so many feelings? That's ridiculous. Oh, you're sensitive? He ha ha. So it's like, well, I can't share that with them. Why don't I just eat them? You know? So okay. then that's a coping skill. And then they're like, why are you doing that? Like, oh, God, this is like, it's let weird just, to be let like... Me, let me just... Can I just uh, <laughs> There's a lot to unpack. Um, So you're talking about your feelings as a kid, pre kind of fat being an issue. You you mean... It's, it's you've got a lot of feelings and that became the issue of fatness. Do you know what I mean? Yes, and at the same time, like, I just... I came out of fat baby and then I didn't stop, right? So, like, I'm gold star fatty. Now, I think that from the time that I can remember, like, uh, like I had glasses since the time I was three. I had a, mm-hmm. you know, cross-eyed with an astigmatism, right? You know, overweight kid, 
um, and was just sort of quiet and also like desperately wanted connection engagement which was not forthcoming you know I'm sort of that sort of end of Gen X kind of latchkey kid you know I was the one who watched my little brother coming home from school because my older sister and a brother my older half sister and brother there's like a 9 and 13 year difference between me and them so they were already like teenage to grown you had to do all the responsibilities of being the oldest kid without even being the oldest kid exactly you know because when you're in the middle everyone just expects you to be raised by the one around you so they're just like whatever you're fine we already did that figure it out here's a key you know where you live or if you don't figure it out um so there is just sort of there's that put on your shoulders of like sort it out in terms of the practicalities of life as well as the sort of emotional life um and you know i don't know I presume, being myself, that everybody needs that kind of engagement when they're young, but maybe not everyone does. I did. Mm -hmm. And that was not something that was forthcoming because... I, you know, whatever. Our parents did what they had to do to, like, all go out to jobs that were terrible and too far away and, like, took too much of their time and their energy to, like, put a roof over our heads and all of that good stuff, which, as an adult, I understand the sacrifice they made. I really appreciate that. I wouldn't be in the positions that I have been throughout my life had they not done that. However, the same time, certain things were lacking, right? And so, you know, I was left to come home after school, school, feed myself from whatever was bought at a Costco, Mm -hmm. from the fridge, and then just, and and get my homework done. So it's like, basically, I was good at being studious, so I just went really hard at like, I, I get... Um, attention and acceptance for being smart. And I am smart. It's something that I can do. I can do well. And I like being in class and raising my hand and having a teacher give me a gold star and all of that stuff. It is the one place where I feel like recognized, alive, like I excel, like I belong. Right. So I'm going to do that. Um, And and was the lack of recognition at home more to do with your parents not physically being there because they were working or was it more to do with you feeling like they didn't recognize, they didn't appreciate you? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All yeah. of the above. I mean, they were not around because they were working. You know, I mean, my mother commuted four hours every day, like two in and two back Jesus. into Los Angeles from the suburbs where we lived because um, that's traffic in L.A. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, and I I mean, I specifically remember this is like a, a, a therapist couch thing of being like, you know, I'm like, I was probably like 12, like 11 or 12. And I was like, I need to, you to talk to me sometimes, you know, my mom being like, when I get home from work, I'm tired. I don't want to talk to you, <laughs> you know? Oh, right. And man. like, that's the thing that a mom's going to, I mean, especially mothers of color. They're just like, my life's hard. Like I'm working. I clearly, I love you because you live in a house, mm-hmm. you know, like you're not on the street, whatever the way that my love language is providing for you. And I get and appreciate that. Mine was having some kind of emotional engagement and there was no one in my family that spoke that language right so I had to kind of wait for a while to figure out if there were people in the world who did and how I could go about finding those people and connecting to those people so I think that was sort of the main um, like whatever psychic emotional breach in my youth that I had constantly tried to sort of navigate you know bridge overcome in some way and I mean I remember being in kindergarten 
And, you know, we were all fenced in. There was like, you know, the like little kindergarten prison and like, you know, first, second, third grade was all around. And I remember being at the fence. I don't know what I was doing. I was like making faces or doing some dance or whatever. And I remember like traditional, like snot nose, white kid, crew cut, Kool-Aid ring around his mouth, bully kid being like, oh, she's funny. Look at her. She's funny. And like, it literally clicked inside my head. And I was like, they're pointing at me and they're saying she's funny and not look at this fat kid. And I was just like, boom, like, Instantaneously, like that is when it happened. Do you think? Like, do you think bullies, kids who are bullies, get up in the morning and go, "I'm going to go and create some comedians. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a kingmaker." Yeah. <laughs> just come to school in their limo. Get back in touch with you thirty years later. I think I need ten uh, percent. Exactly. I, I you. think you'll find I did that. I'm like, why do you still have a Kool Aid ring around your mouth, man? Like we're grown. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I think they go like, um, I don't know. My dad kicked the shit out of me all weekend. Let me sure. go. <laughs> but yes, um, I'd love it if they were just out there here to um you know produce be agents producers and other facilitators you know they're the um you know they're the the inspirational teacher from all of those like early 90s movies but you didn't go off the rails and become focused on being the class clown because you were studious and you enjoyed yeah. working so that's quite a good combo right yeah. of like you can be the funny and bright kid yeah i was like i loved authority i love people telling me what to do how great is that i wish i had somebody now to just tell me what the fuck to do you know yeah. don't you as and don't be like, can someone just come in here and say, stop doing that, start doing that, do it by midnight, I'll come back and check your work. And I'd be like, thank you so much. Yes. <laughs> and of course, that's the one thing that in comedy is never going to happen. Yeah. So this is Desiree, uh, just a joy to speak to. Uh, as I mentioned before, there's over 30 minutes of extras available to you if you're in the Insiders Club, including her very inspiring thoughts on being her own boss and recognising her own value. And we go really deeply into her last show, Desiree's Coming Early, uh, which used a sort of twin, a dual narrative to reframe her own personal history whilst being very, very funny indeed. So all of that available to you if you're a member of the Insiders Club, comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. And if you are currently salaried or not struggling like a self-employed person at the moment, then consider donating some of your uh, toilet paper and shotgun money to uh, to uh, joining the Insiders Club. At whatever level you see fit, safe in the knowledge that it's very easy to downgrade that level once everything's calm and live comedy starts happening again. So that's all of that. I, I've got no live work to tell you about. <laughs> Let's gloss over that. But here's something I can tell you about. Like every comedian in the world over the last week, I have been scrabbling in what I'm sure will be referred to in years to come as the Great Pivot uh, Uh, to create more online work. So one of the things I'm doing, as well as a number of uh, special episodes coming your way soon with comedians who are being particularly agile uh, during The Great Pivot, Uh, and I'm going to talk to a lot of comics and also do some special mini-episodes with people in the comedy world at large um, about how they're reacting to the crisis. I, I want to know how you're doing. I want to know whether you're bunkered up. I, I hope you're all being socially distant, socially responsible, if not actively on lockdown. Um, so get in touch. Info at comedianscomedian.com and tell me your stories of how you're coping, how you are managing your mental health, how you are using creativity, perhaps, whatever you're into, to keep yourself sane under these circumstances. So we'll keep it comcom themed under the broad umbrella of the remit of this show. Uh, how are you surviving this 
I'm not going to call it an apocalypse, but uh, it's not great, is it? So uh, the other thing I was going to mention was you can join me for a working lunch. Go to comedianscomedian.com slash lunch and you can book yourself a one-to-one social or professional online lunch date with me. You bring your own lunch and your own Wi-Fi and your own laptop and uh, we connect remotely whilst socially isolating and I'm very happy to have a social natter with you or for a longer period and uh, a different price. You and I can have uh, not just a kind of you know, interaction, but we can actually brainstorm whatever creative project you're interested in. I think those are going to be a lot of fun. I've already booked a few of those, so thank you very much to everyone that's got on with those. And if you haven't already downloaded and listened to it, uh, there is a special episode preceding this one, which is about resilience and creativity at times of crisis. I've tried to use some of the learning from the last 330 episodes to share with you my ideas. I mean, I mostly recorded it for me to help me stay sane, but I think it's of value. It might cheer you up or reassure you somehow. Um, and uh, to to look into what some of the things I've learned from doing the podcast can help me and maybe help you cope with uh, the demands of the age. <laughs> I mean, it's just we just kind of come up with more and more ways of not saying fucking great big terrifying pandemic. But there we go. Comedianscomedian.com slash lunch to book that. That's all for now. Let's get back to Desiree Birch. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I wonder in that kind of the the sort of the creation of a Desiree Birch as a child, one yeah. of the things is uh, the desire for uh, kind of appreciation. Yeah. And one of the things, and I know some of your some of your work and in interviews I've read with you has been about uh, the concept of being a black person in predominantly white spaces. Yeah. Is that are there is there a connection between that and this sort of sense of permission? Probably, probably. Oh my God, free therapy, Stu. Thank you. (laughs) I mean, uh, probably. I think that I've always um, existed in that fish out of water space, which is probably lends itself to comedy quite well. But, you know, uh, my parents moved out of sort of South Central Los Angeles when I was six months old because it was dangerous and they could move way out to the suburbs in a place that wasn't even a town yet Mm -hmm. where they could buy a house for not that much money. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, these days, 40 years later, like those homes are selling for a million dollars, you know, but like at the time it was the sticks. So they just moved out there. So, it, you know, a immediately predominantly white um, and actually East Asian um, surroundings where it was like, okay, we were sort of at some time the only ones and then there are a few more, but like uh, there is that isolation and that feeling of like, okay, I don't belong here, but if I do really well, because that's sort of the old concept, that's that sort of um, Bill Cosby respectability politics, you know? <laughs> yeah, sure, I mean, sure. there, there is an era of like, be, I mean, it predates him, it's just like he's famous for, you know, purporting that, but um, uh, the, like, be really good and be ex- exceptional. There's like the whole, like, be the best and you have to be twice as good kind of mentality, but there's also the like, 
be respectable and then you'll be accepted and then you won't have problems. Mm -hmm. But that is literally being accepted by um, a uh, predominantly white notion of what is acceptable. And then once you get that, you become sort of excised from your group, which is already like not exactly what I wanted because I wanted to belong. So it's like it's a funny sort of a victory, isn't it? Yes. To like, oh, what I've won now. Have I I, I been accepted by people who I'm not liked by pretending to be like them in ways that aren't important? Yes. And I'll never be like them and I also won't be like what I am so I'll, I'll always be this this sort of singular isolated thing yeah. you know and it's like it, it is that thing of like I mean I guess it's a good thing that I haven't had like a traumatic brain injury because like that's two se- se- seconds away from like sociopath psychopath you know like all you need is someone who's kind of like okay like I don't belong and I'm constantly putting on a performance for everybody you know in order to be and, and then like to get hit by a car and then sure. you're just murdering people um, from what we've all learned from watching too many kind documentaries (laughs) um so i think you know there was that upbringing there was me being like at some point and also um growing up in los angeles like everything around it is the back lot of hollywood in terms of everybody works in the industry desperately wants to work in the industry or just wants to look like they belong in the so so just growing up and being like I don't look like anything that, you know, L.A. is supposed to look like. I'm not thin. I'm not blonde. I'm not white. I'm not like, mm, oh, my God. I like have thoughts. And if I express them, people go like, why? Um, and so, like, I was like, at some point, I knew from early on, probably in my tween years of being like, I got to get the fuck out of here. And so when it came time to go to schools, I was like, OK, I'm going to apply to UCLA because it's the best school near me. But I'm also going to apply to Harvard, Yale and NYU because they are on the other side of the world and I have to believe that they are to me on the other Mm -hmm. side of the world I have to believe that not everyone is like this anywhere else in the world right and because the feedback loop of all of the media that you're getting comes from the same place that you live and you're just like is this the whole universe because like I don't think it can be because if so I don't belong in the universe yes and that probably isn't right but maybe it is so I was just like okay let me go to the school on the other side of the country so then you know I got into Yale went to Yale was like okay great um and but then again you're a fish out of water in a different kind of place where culturally you're just like all of these kids went to private school since the day they were you know like I am way out of my depth and at the time you don't realize that everybody else your age feels like they're way out of their depth as well but like there's the academic sort of out of your depth and then there's the cultural like I don't even know like these people have the kinds of names I've only seen on buildings you know (laughs) or heard in pop like I don't understand what that's like I'm like you're a Rothschild like what the fuck you know so like I and I didn't even understand that concept of like old money in the way like America has old money even though it's all relatively none of it's that old but like you know that sort of idea of what do your family do kind of thing um, until I got there and that was a complete mind fuck for four years you know as well as the sort of academic rigor and whatnot you know and you do find friends and people that you know I'm still friends with to this day that I love and adore but at the same time you're just like I don't like all everybody is amazing and also everybody comes from this culture that like I just don't belong to so there's that 
And so I think that I've always kind of maintained that relationship to things because then I just was like, okay, we'll go to New York City because that'll be hard. And I'm used to doing hard things that I don't know how to do and trying to excel at them. And that's mm-hmm. like a, a goal or a benchmark I can set for myself to try to achieve. Yes. But that's where the control freak that comes in. It's like, oh, well, if I can do this, then I have another thing under control. And then if I can do that, and that's that becomes its own monster as well. Yes, yes. And I suppose if, if there is... Is there is there it's one of the attractive things about comedy is mm. that it's incredibly difficult, and so by like, there's always an opportunity. There's 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 kind of inbuilt drama and yeah. heroism yeah. in trying to do something incredibly hard and yes. even if you failed you were trying to do something, something incredibly, incredibly hard. hard that like you know 90 plus percent of the population cannot do or would not even try to make themselves do where it's like oh my god you only got a bronze medal in the olympics like yeah. you know like seriously <laughs> yeah, sure. that's you know well beyond what anybody else is thinking about so putting yourself in those positions as you say yeah. of being like okay we're in this exceptional class of doing something very difficult yes. there's still glory and mystique around yes being one of, there one of the things about comedy that this podcast I now realize in retrospect is an attempt was an attempt to get over the fact that to me comedy felt like having homework for the rest of my life yes because you could always be writing yeah well I I wonder if as well for someone who's a sort of high academic achiever like yourself whether it's it's like having an exam for the rest of your life you get examined every every, day every gig you've got to get that gold star yes and so you can pit yourself against it and it will presumably sometimes it will reward you and you will get the gold star and sometimes the experience of not is it's reward isn't the right word but it's satisfying somehow because it means you still took the exam every night yeah yeah gosh you're brilliant Uh, but (laughs) you really are but yeah I think that that is that there is the sort of there's the exam or like I'm in this really important program at school and like even if I didn't do the top in my class but you always want to be the top in your class like that night on the show like I don't know if everybody I try to now remind myself like you got to be the best you not the best on the show because in my mind it was always like I got to be better than everyone else and that's that overachiever is, is straight that, A grade grubber thing does that does that benefit you though because I, I speak to a lot of people I don't really have that kind of killer instinct of like I have to be the best on the show which is good I think well I think I'm maybe uh, I mean I'm I was going to say maybe I'm happier I'm sort of maybe less happy but for different reasons but, uh, <laughs> but, but I, do, I mean I do think it's I, I feel like increasingly you're on a hiding to nothing if you're just all always trying to win but then mm-hmm. part of the like why don't you always try and win I think to myself yeah but why don't you have that killer instinct for 20 years and then look back and, and you can comfortably regret that once you're at the top of the pile Do you know what yes. I mean? because it does get you places right wanting to win gets wanting, you places wanting, you yes. win wanting to win again but it is the escape velocity thing like wanting to win does get you places but at some point it's like um, I mean, I'm sure you guys had TV shows like this, you know, like um, we had this TV show in like the 80s, 90s called Head of the Class. And it was like, you know, this teacher and it was like only the smart kids in the school, oh, yeah, okay, you know, sure. kind of thing, you know. And so it's the thing is, it's like like in that class, there is no point in being the best in that class, because at some point somebody's got to be the physics nerd and somebody's got to be the classics nerd and somebody's got to be, you know, the person that like connects those two. And someone's got to be the ones like I'm flipping my pencil all the time. I don't really care but when I show up to math leads like I totally throw down and like you know at some point it's like yeah you do have to be the best and I have that killer instinct but then also sometimes 
the killer instinct, like the best application of it is like, oh, I have to be the best me I can be because at some point being really good at killing keeps you like really good at doing clubs on the road. But in order to get your show or your thing, you've got to be so crystalline, specifically you, that you are irreplaceable and that we have to have your story and your thing. And that's not to say that you can't have the killer instinct and, you know, be yourself. But there are times when you have to kind of find nuance and not... You know, there's that thing in comedy where have you, I'm sure we all have. You found yourself on stage saying something that you're like, why is this coming out of my mouth? Like, I don't believe this, but I know that this audience is going to laugh at it. So I'm going to yeah. say, tell them what they want and not what I wanted to say. And there's always this balance between I got to give you what you want because that's my d- job. Like, I'm here because you're drunk and I got to keep you from fucking and fighting in the middle of the room. And this is the way that I do that. And then I get paid for doing that. Right. Um, But like, you know, but I also need to get something out of this because otherwise I'm just like dredging up my life stories for no discernibly good reason to entertain drunkards and to go home alone and empty like sad clown crying into an empty bottle. Right. Yeah. So it has to be enough of both. And if you're doing that killer thing, it's like this is for you and I'm going to make you do this and like, you know, like. It's it's like the person in sex who never lets you go down on them, you know, where it's like, I want to be the one pleasing you. I get off on you getting off, but yeah. they never open themselves up to receive anything. And sure. so you kind of feel like, are you there? Or like, you know, like, I want to connect to you, but... So anyway, I say that lots of analogies just to say that I do think it requires, or at least for me, I'm trying to look for the other side of that a little bit yes. more because I have focused on pleasing others more than I have being like presenting myself. Yes. Now you seem, a couple of things you said have made me think you, you use the phrase uh, despair and, oh, compare and compare despair. And despair. And, uh, that makes me, that <laughs> feels like therapy language. It is. And you feel quite reconstructed the way you're talking about it. Like, yeah. you feel like yeah. I went through a thing and now I can see that and yeah. I'm aware and I'm trying to change that. Is that kind of, is that fair? Is that yeah, fair observation? I think that's fair. I mean, I, uh, I, I don't, I have not done as much therapy as I would like to or need, but I've done enough and I've, you know, you've come across people like you know every person is a gift of their lived experience and information I think compare and despair comes from like AA or something I think that's somebody told me that or whatever and I was like oh that's beautiful like that's exactly what we do Um, and so but and especially after having been in New York for 13 years I was like that's all any of us are doing all the time is looking at what we don't have or what we feel like we should or what the next thing is Um, and so yeah I, I mean I am I don't, is there anyone who isn't reconstructed or especially in comedy? I think if you do it long enough and you don't wind up killing yourself through drink or drugs or extreme lengths of poverty or whatever else to do what you do, you have to do that. You know, like there's only so much you can dredge yourself up and sort of look at yourself before you're compelled to examine yourself in order to get like good. And usually that is assisted by the outside help of therapy and not just telling people in an audience and then never dealing with it at all. Um, but yeah, I think that, um, different elements in my life have kind of helped me to at least start to recognize what, uh, is there and what I'm dealing with, as well as just me being a thoughtful person who, you know, we all write at some point, however we write, if you do enough writing, you know, it is a mirror for your mind. And at some point you start looking at what is going on. And if you were a thoughtful person, you know, as, you're kind of like, Oh, well, I can examine. Now I'm reading a book. I'm reading a story of someone.
one because we all live ourselves, you know, as stories to a certain extent. Like we all have these egos that are in this narrative that we consider to be our life story. And at some point, if you're fortunate enough, you realize that there is something underneath that that is actually you that doesn't have to be beholden to any one story, even though we kind of swing vine to vine from different ones, you know, because that's the way our brains work, like that you can kind of you can decide on a self-image and yeah. then later you can if you if yeah. you're clever I don't know if you're clever enough if you just notice yeah. if you notice that you've done that or someone points out that you've done that or you learn it somehow you go oh I have a story yeah. that I'm telling myself that's yes. me and I can if I want to I can put I, that yes, down and make a choice I can close the book on that story yeah. like if I want to I can be like that story's done or I like that character let's read the next novel where they do other things yeah oh my god <laughs> that is such a good I hope people listening to that and I hope I again can engage with this as well but I, I hope people listening to this can get that that is a big thing to know yeah that's so important yeah. to know and it makes me think of the um uh, what we were talking about earlier on about permission and being in spaces that don't necessarily have people like you even recognizing that you need to get out of where you're living yeah the value of actually realizing that because think of the people who never realize that yeah people whether they're in relationships that are toxic or just unhelpful yeah or people who are in uh, jobs or social situations or geographical locations which are no good who simply never had the notion I don't mean they weren't smart enough no. I just mean it just never occurred, occurred to, to them, them that leaving just leaving leave. yeah. yeah just that well uh, there are there are the people who say you know I had uh, an ex who, who would say things like well what choice did I have and like there are those of us who say you always have a choice right mm. and so I mean it is about the perspective shift of being like I can just say no because you know the 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 like literally the character of Desiree that everyone knows and that I know like is like that's a character but that's not a human being like a human being is unknowable whether that's a partner or whether that's yourself like you don't you like knowing yourself is a journey like you don't ever really complete it right you know because you've not been in every single situation and until you've been in every single situation how do you know who the hell you are right because I, you know we've all done things that have surprised ourselves Right. And it's like and it's not because like, oh, that's what a Desiree or a stew would do. It was, you know, it's like the, you know, uh, the stranger, you know, Camus is just like, you know, he's like, I don't know why I shot the guy. The sun was in my eye. Do you know what I mean? I, like, I actually don't know much Camus. OK, um, gotcha. So I mean, sorry to ruin it. But no, but it's a very existentialist <laughs> novel. But like the guy who's like being on trial for the murder. But he does say this thing of like, you know, essentially I, the sun was in my eye and I pulled the trigger. Right. Mm -hmm. Because we like to think that things happen for a reason and gotcha. they usually happen for a multiplicity of reasons and also because phenomena and circumstance and sure. like the I don't know the sun I turn left. Yeah. And then the rest of my life happened because I turned left. Like, you know, there are there are lots of reasons that thing happens. And then sometimes just things happen. But I think some of us are beholden to the reasons and the narrative and like, well, what choice did I have? And it's like uh, any number of them, like it's probably a multiverse, any number of choices. If you actually took the time to go like, 
it, do I want to be in this position? Is this bringing me joy or pain? Is this the reason that I'm alive or not? Right. And I think some of us go like, okay, well, let me remove myself from that and do something else, or at least plant that seed in my mind so that in a month, a year, or however much time I might be in a different place or people who are just kind of like, this is my lot in life. And they're like tearing out their clothes and they're like, this is who I am. And it's like, Great, I've definitely but, yeah. been both of those people. I've definitely, <laughs> I've definitely done things where I'm like, this is not the right thing for me to do, really. But I can't admit that to myself because I'm too busy fulfilling the narrative that I've decided in. Yes. You know, I'm this person yes. and this person doesn't quit when he discovers uh-huh. he's in the wrong thing. Yes. No, this, the person that I am sees it through badly yes. in the wrong way for years. Which is, I mean, it's great to be able to be an artist in that regard, to be a comedian or to be a clown or an actor because you recognize character, you recognize the mass, you recognize like, these are the choices that this person would make and so that is why I'm making these choices because that is what Stu would do on this day, sure. obviously. You know? And, and, and But it's amazing to be the person that recognizes that thing even while you're doing it. Like, we've all been in the middle of doing something being like, I guess this is what I go and do now, right? This is right. And everyone's like, yeah, that's right. And you're like, okay. <laughs> let's talk about, uh, let's talk about uh, Desiree's coming early. Yeah. Which I saw at Edinburgh last year. Thank you so much uh, for coming. In the hive. Early. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And I did come early. I did. It was quite early on in the run. Oh, sweet. And, Thank you. That's and when was, I need friends the most. Hey, no worries. It, it was, it was an extraordinary show. It Thank was, you. I had seen clips of yours before and I, as we see in the clips of you that are available online, it's really kind of uh, empowered, sort of positive, kind of scathing, but yeah. in a warm kind of way. Yeah. <laughs> You've got lots of stuff on sex and yeah. really being the master of your own destiny. Yeah. You know, some stuff about dating when it's really from a very well-observed, well-written, but really flowing conversational kind of a way. And then, so all of that, Desiree, I feel like I knew a little bit of. Yeah. And and of course, the other element in, your, in, in the picture of you in my mind before I saw that show was that I know that you have a kind of almost like um what's the word not quite an offbeat sensibility or a kind of an outsider sensibility yeah. like your poster with the uh the penises the penis yeah. poster so just te- let's just tell still us still a classic I one. mean it's it's hard for me to explain really what that was so why don't I you tell, tell us you what that was this. so um <laughs> The uh, the first stand-up hour, like, completely stand-up hour that I took to Edinburgh in 2006. And was that your first stand-up hour? Yeah. Or was that just your first one at Edinburgh? That was my first hour. Like, I'd done, I came from, like, basically solo performance. Like, I'd done a lot of theater in New York. I came from one-woman shows. Gotcha. So, the first time I went to Edinburgh, I took the show called 52 Man Pickup, which was all about everyone I'd ever had sex with on a deck of cards. And it Fantastic. was, like, shuffled, random, interactive, but it was very much, like, great. Very strong theatrical format there. Right, exactly, right? So it was very much theater, like the trappings of theater and experimental devised theater. Okay, but not funny. But what's funny? Yeah, definitely, definitely. But it was the kind of show that, you know, it's like, well, it doesn't, like, people are like, well, it's not stand-up, even though it's like comedy and the jokes are funny and it's like stand-up jokes in these storytelling narratives. Um, It's storytelling, really. And it's like, it's not quite theater because it's too stand-up-y and it's not quite stand-up because it's too theater-y. And so I've often sort of suffered from being in the middle of two different places but that's kind of where interesting things happen which is why I like to do that so that was the first time I'd ever brought a thing to Edinburgh but the first time I was like this is a stand-up show with me at a microphone telling jokes like stand-up mm-hmm. was um 
called This Is Evolution, and I did that in 2016, yes. Um, and so the poster for it uh, was a picture of me, just like a photo I had taken, but um, the picture um, comprised uh, like dick pics. So I basically am the kind of weirdo that if you're a dude who sent me your dick, I was like, well, it's mine now. I'm like the mom who's like, your ball's in <laughs> my were, yard, it's mine now. They were it's your mine. dick pics, they're, they they're belonged to they're, you. <laughs> that dude sent it out into the universe, not giving a shit what happened to it. He sent it to me. It's mine now. Well, no, I just feel like <laughs> from the point of, and, and let's just explain. It's literally your face is made, made up out of, of dicks. dicks. Yeah, so it's all these dicks repositioned, colorized, repurposed, flipped around, whatever, to, like, basically as a painting, make up my face. And you could walk past it and go, oh, there's an interesting mottled effect on that picture. Of yes. The what the fuck? Yes. Like, that was the... So oh, I stay with my friends when I do Edinburgh, and they're a couple. They have two kids. And so she looked at the photo, the, the poster, and she was like, She's like, oh, it's interesting. She's like, it's kind of weird. She's like, it's kind of like scary, actually. And then he walked in the kitchen. He's like, ha, bunch of knobs. Yeah. And then walked out. Right? So like literally pe- some people saw it right away. Some people were like, I walked by it all summer and I never saw it until yeah. somebody said it's a bunch of dicks. And they're like, what? So it's, I don't know if it's like a magic eye poster yeah. or whatever. But like, yeah, you could walk by and be like, oh, it's kind of a painting or just a bunch of knobs. And, and I, I mean, <laughs> I enjoyed it for its own sake. Uh, but also finding out that the knobs in that picture are knobs that were sent to you. <laughs> <laughs> that gives it another kind of magical quality somehow. That's, yes. It reminds me of the, um, there was a guy I, w- I went to, uh, I did a devised theatre degree, and there was a guy on my course who, um, he made a bull roarer, you know, one of those Aboriginal Australian, like a piece of wood with wire, and you uh, wind it to oh. open dimensional gateways or okay. something. Wow. But he made one of those out of a floorboard from the house he was born in. It's oh, one of those, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. take the thing, yeah. transform the thing, yeah. it has its, uh, it kind of carries with it the magical power the, the so magical power these yeah. were magic dicks that had been sent <laughs> like, yeah. magic, magic eye dicks you made the dicks magic because yes. they were just dicks they were the just re- they were just regular old not magic dicks <laughs> but, <laughs> we but had ones that had been sent to you so yeah. you re you reappropriated the dicks yes although to be fair at some point I ran out of the utility of all the dicks that I had sent <laughs> and so I had to get a gay friend of mine to add a couple of dicks in there okay. so there's okay. many of a repeated dick you'll be like that's the same dick in her eyebrow and in her lip sure but sure. at some point I was like, we need some differently shaped dicks to make Fair. some of these. <laughs> Very sensible. <laughs> but they were all unsolicited dicks. Yes. That is that's, for that's, the, that's part of the yes. magical element. And part of the reason I did that is just because when I lived in New York, like, I mean, it happens anywhere, right? You know how people just draw dicks on things. Sure. And like, especially, you know, the subway posters in New York City immediately get a dick on it. Like, you you see them and you're like, why does anyone take a picture of a woman with her mouth slightly ajar or sure. her butt in the picture? Because it's just asking for a dick to be on it. And so I was just like, I want to be famous enough that I have my poster up there and that someone draws a dick on it. Okay. And then I was like, actually, you know what? I'm just going to claim that now. I'm just going to put dicks all over my poster and then nobody else, if they do it, it's just like putting a hat on a hat. And that was your your debut show at Edinburgh. Yes. So that is an extraordinary, if you'll forgive the expression, ballsy. (laughs) uh, um, Yes. Move. I mean, that's the sort of thing you could imagine an agent forbidding their client from doing. Yes. Do you mean that's like. That was before I had an agent. Oh, you're really going to do that? (laughs) Because not only is it a photo with multiple penises on it, it's your face. Yeah, and and that is like it's one of those things where what's the phrase? It is a high risk strategy, right? Yeah. Because uh, 
Well, I, I don't know. I don't know quite what I mean by the risk, but it's you know what I mean. It's yes, like, of you course. should never do that. do that. And the fact that you did that was why it was so striking and extraordinary, and it made everyone go, "What?" Yeah. But yeah. I mean, that's also Edinburgh. Edinburgh is the place of like high risk strategies, right? Well, because it should so, be. Well, yes, it is diminishing in that regard these days. But like at that time, I was like the the year before I had taken a theater piece that I brought over from New York, and I did the theater version of the festival, which is oh. a totally different festival, right? Oh, talk to you me know? about that. I've never done the theater Okay, the yeah, I mean, it's, it, well, I mean, it's not entirely different, but it's just different people, different timing. So I brought this show called Tar Baby. It was all about race and capitalism in America. It's okay. very, you know, uh, 90 minute, one woman show, like oh. a big prop box costumes, you know, doing this whole aesthetic of like being a carnival barker, you know, selling the ideas of certain sort of tropes, stereotypes and whatever, because I'm talking about how sort of race is propagandized. And at that time you were already a comic. So you were a stand-up, yes. but you had chosen to do not a stand-up show, but yes, a, a one-woman show. Yeah, this was the last show that I had been doing in New York before I moved over. And, you know, and it was uh, something that is, continues to be important to me. And I was like, let me take this to Edinburgh. I had gone with 52, which had been in the comedy category. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is theater. I'm not going to make anybody come expecting to see a comedy show, lock the doors and being like, 90 minutes a race. <laughs> right? It is theater. Sure. Right? And so... Um, you know, so then, like, my show was on at noon in the turret at Gilded Balloon, you know, like, during the daytime, you get, like, and it was that kind of thing where it's, like, it it, um, it got a fringe first, and then, you know, like, you get, like, an award, and then you get, like, the Guardian review, and the next day, there's, like, 50 people who are over 70 sitting, and you're, like, oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> Here we go. Mm-hmm. You know, before, it's, like, you know, very diverse crowd, whatever, then as soon as it pops, like, it's just, like, it's just full up with, like, yeah. people who are, like, we hear this is important. Because all the silver tops <laughs> like to buy tickets in advance as well. Yes. So they, that's, yes, that's they, they're, like, here's yeah. my ticket in advance, and they're, sure. like, we've, we've read we should see this. That's and it's your like, run, knackered. That's good, but it's also kind of, like, I don't know if you're necessarily the people who are going to, be, you're the people who are going to come, not always, but frequently, with the strongest resistance to these ideas so anyway uh but yeah like just the the whole world of like oh the awards for that and the and the reviewers and the how to you know and i had gone a a couple times before so it's like i had friends there like i had a friend who's a photographer who lives there and she's like oh well because i'm a photographer i know certain people at Mm -hmm. certain newspapers and i can help you reach out to them like it was really grassroots of like just trying to get anyone to care Mm -hmm. about this theater piece but like you know i had to wake up at eight in the morning and make sure I'd like ironed out costumes and whatever. Like it's not a thing that you're doing, you know, and I wasn't like I did some comedy gigs while I was there only to promote the show, you know, to confuse people once they came to see this show. Um, Still a very funny show because like humor is in all the things I do, but not stand up. Um, And and yeah, like went didn't really drink because I had to keep a voice so I could do a show for 90 minutes every Mm -hmm. morning. And, like, was trying to go to bed at, like, you know, 8, 9, 10 o'clock every night. Like, it was just a different... It was, like, when I started to really discover how much work the fringe is, you know, talking about exams. Like, that's the big sort of exam. Like, we all get to, you know, May, June, July, like, we've been revising for an exam forever. Mm -hmm. And, like, you know, you're in July and you're like, "Ah, it's coming and I'm not ready and I'm not going to pass out of school. And, like, like my life's going to explode. I'm never going to be anything if this show doesn't go well and get, like, everyone to love it, which, like, we all have these ridiculous fantasies. But, like, that's the sort of big crunch time exam. So that... 
in some ways it was really hard work, but it was also really wonderful to just be like, I like I know these comics and I like kind of see them in passing, but I'm not hanging out at, you know, the loft or Brooks Bar. I'm not doing any of that festival at all. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I'm like trying to go on a healthy walk and like talking, seeing other Jeez. people's theater shows yes. and like doing that whole thing. So that had been the year before. And this was like, OK, I need to like that had gone really well. But I do need to distinguish myself as a comedian because this is how I'm going to live and make money in this country. And I need to like be like, here's here's my comedy. Here is who, you know, and I, I think that your first show is frequently like a greatest hits catalog of the mm-hmm. jokes that you've been telling up to the point at which you can actually have a show to be like, this is who the hell I am. And then be and then your freshman show goes well. And then you're like, ah, hell, like I, <laughs> you know, because sophomore year is always pretty rough. You're like the second tricky second. Right. You know, mm-hmm. you've got to go do that. But like so that first one was like, I got to go balls out dick pics um and like here's all my comedy like you know this is who i am and then that's started people being like oh okay you're yeah you're a comic come and you know do these gigs come yeah there's a soho run like all of that stuff and i was like okay great like i can actually make a job of this now and so what kind of things were similar and what kind of things were different in your construction of the two shows the 90 minute show about race mm-hmm. and which doesn't have to be funny bits of it are funny but mm-hmm. like in terms of the making the writing the direction were you, were you are you kind of self-directing because you're devising oh god no I come, <laughs> I come from theater well enough to know get yourself a fucking director okay. like I mean so stand up as well yeah okay. I do um, because I in terms of the similarities between them uh, I like to construct stand-up hours with a narrative. So I'm still uh, a solo performer at heart. I like to, I mean, a lot of us do. And I think that's partially why I do love comedy in the UK, because a lot of it is based on, you know, the Edinburgh hour, doing yep. an hour of stand-up, having a narrative arc, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So in terms of similarity, I do like to have something that I know has kind of a narrative arc and also has like meaning like I I care like I want to impart something that I think is important to impart to people you know like I a lot of comics are like I just want to make people laugh you know and and whatever I do to do that and like make them have a good time and and people who do that really well are beautiful because they're just you know masters of like fuckery and upending mm-hmm. things and it's great to watch that you know and anything less than that it's just like Oh, great. We've got a joke about the, you know, dentist. Like, why? Why is anyone alive to hear this? You know, so I feel like there's got to be something that, you know, again, that sort of give and take that, like, I want to give you laughter and also give you a part of myself and something that I feel like is important to me, even if it's my perspective on the world. And, you know, a lot of my stuff is like, you know, I like to be like, ah, it's just dick ass and pussy jokes, you know, and Mm -hmm. that's just me sort of, you know, undercutting my work. But like, you know, a lot of it is very sort of like body, physical, sex relationships, because I mean, that is in part like the basis of humanity. A lot of that is my story as a woman in a certain kind of body that is, you know, racialized, you know, like has a different size, is sexualized differently. And so, and is a perspective that maybe not a lot of people have, but people see the other side of. And for the people who do come from that perspective, they feel like, oh, I get to be seen through this person who's talking about it because not enough people talk about it. Like, I can't tell you the the amount of television, film, other media that I grew up on that I just looked at not belonging in anywhere and just being like, why, why is this important? It's like, like, and I have to care about your story all the time. 
and that's great and I feel like I know your story really well Mm -hmm. you know and I also feel like I have a responsibility to myself to be like well here's mine and actually grow into the feeling that it deserves some kind of a recognition or a telling or whatever so um, I think that that putting myself on the line is important because people feel that inherently and it raises the stakes of what you're doing and it raises the immediacy and the connectability of what you're doing because the more specific you are to yourself the more universal those things become and people kind of feel and recognize that in your work and they're like wow even though you know it can come off on the surface it's like you're just telling dick jokes it's like but like really you're talking about like you know humanity or you know discrimination or power or these other things underlying that stuff and I feel that which way round do those things come do you have an idea for a dick joke and then realize it's about power or do you have an idea for a power joke and hide it in a dick joke I wish that I was clever enough to do the latter I think that I I think that my mind immediately goes to filth and then I go like (laughs) where does that come from or what is that related to and then I'm like oh actually you know and then you start building on it and then you get perspective and you see like oh it's actually about this sure you know so it is a lot of inside out because it usually just starts with like that's a dick Sure, sure, sure. And and when you are, I'm interested in this idea of imparting something. And you said it's it's about sharing your perspective on something. When you're making an hour show, like one of the things that I feel trips me up a lot as as a creative person is I think, what do I actually... What do I actually have to say about this? Do I need to solve this problem? Like if I want to, I, I get caught up in trying to solve the point that I'm talking about yeah. rather than simply saying, here's how I see it. Yeah, you're not you- alone in that. I think, I, I, I don't know. I think many of us as comedians have delusions of grandeur about like how we're all like, you know, the philosopher, <laughs> genius, messiahs that the world needs to actually listen to because it's like, I've got it. I mean, I just had it and I'm sure I wrote it down on a piece of paper somewhere, but I've got it and like if you just see this and if everyone just saw this the way that I saw this we could fix this already <laughs> and then I, you I, have to temper that you know sort of yes well, that's interesting <laughs> yeah. I, I think I meant almost the exact opposite of that which is oh, that okay. I feel like I don't have it I don't have the answer oh, okay. and so I don't feel like I give myself permission to talk about the problem because I'm not able to suggest an answer to it oh interesting I, I think you have answered that question yeah, by saying that actually you feel like you do have yeah, the answer yeah I think a lot of times I'm just like I've got the answer you guys <laughs> but I, I I am fascinated and appreciative of your answer which is you know or the continuation of that is that I'm and that's sometimes an entree into writing a bit or something else is like is the question rather than the answer the questions are far more interesting and to go I don't have the answer to this and like the process of not having the answer and trying to look for the answer or should I look for the answer or like is there any point in answering this anyway can be riveting actually because ultimately you can take us to a lot of different potential answers and then show us why you really don't have the answer and it's not because you don't have uh an answer it's because you have too many answers and there's and what is right ultimately I feel very empowered now (laughs) I think that's a really good point yeah yeah, yeah. I think that that is a fascinating perspective from which to write things is to be like this is so overwhelming but also like I can't stop looking for it you know yeah as someone who believes in themselves how would you best help someone who is listening to this thinking, Jesus, I wish I could believe in myself that much. I mean... Can that be taught? Can that be transmitted? Are there any 
Is there yes. anything you can you can how you know, to you how do you get a person get that self belief and just jam it into them? What what is that? Like, I I I wish that I could tell you the one thing that's gonna like cinch it. I can give you a host of things. Like so one. You know, there's a whole thing. It's like there's no, there's only one you and you're the only one like you and whatever. And that's important. But it's like, to me, it's like, there's got to be a reason that I am on this earth right now. And until I found it, I'm going to go look for it. And so that is important. Like the thing is like, believe in yourself by going out and doing things and building that belief. Right. So if and, you don't, and also that's a quest as well. I'm yes. going to go out and look for it. And if, the, if you frame it yeah. as a quest, it doesn't need, to, it's not yeah. competition. Yes. And you don't need to be good at it. Like it's great to suck at things. It's really, I love I love taking a class in another art form that I don't do. Like, I love taking a painting class. I am shit at painting. But it is wonderful to sit there and be like, I, I just learned a different skill. Or I went to a dance class and I learned something. Oh, that's how you do it. And now that I know how you do it, I realize how much I suck at doing it. Because mm-hmm. it's so far to go. But I also realize that it's a thing that I can build. And I could try a little bit more. And it's like, you know, the, the whole thing about being funny. It's like, you can only grow so much. But like, funny's funny and all that other stuff. But like, most... Most stuff in the world isn't like that. Most stuff in the world is people going out and figuring out how to do something and enjoying the journey of figuring out how to do something and getting a little bit better and seeing how far that they've come and seeing people come behind them who are who are where they were and going like, oh, I used to be there and I can tell you what I did because I've mastered a little bit of a thing. And it is exciting. You know, I'm a nerd. It's exciting to learn. It's exciting to be part of a process and to grow and to have some mastery and to be like, oh, but there's still so much more ahead. And like, I can get to that. So I think the believing in yourself is built on deeds and acts and experience and throwing yourself into the the places where you wouldn't go and also sometimes being like I'm not, not only am I not good at that, I don't even want to do that. That's great. That's a new thing you've learned is I don't ever want to do that again. That's awesome. So I think that like test yourself, you know, is the best way because yes, we all have inherent worth no matter what we do. And that's an important thing to know. But for many of us, it takes going out and seeking things to find out that the thing that you were looking for was inside you all along. So magical. So that was Desiree. You can follow her at Des the Ray, D-E-S-T-H-E-R-A-Y, on Twitter. And one would imagine Instagram as well. Go to DesireeBirch.com uh, to find her website. I won't talk about any uh, live dates, but who knows what inspiring and creative thing she's currently doing online. Everybody is pivoting. Everybody is trying to find ways to replace their live work. And often their, I mean, it's you know, their income. Some For some of us, I mean, I'm one of the lucky ones. This I've got this podcast arm. I've got something else that I can lean on and pour my energies into. A lot of comics are circuit comics solely or mainly in, in to the extent that their income, their income has completely evaporated. I know of one comic who's now working in a factory. He's got a bunch of kids and uh, he couldn't afford to fuck about. So that's a quick pivot of one sort. If you are a comic who is doing something extraordinary or visionary or pioneering uh, in an attempt to make what you normally do happen online somehow to make it still exist during this crisis then uh, please get in touch with me info at comedianscomedian.com I'm doing some special episodes as I said uh, stories of comedians changing and adapting as we all undergo this very painful transformation so get in touch please uh, at comcompod at stu goldsmith or info 
at comedianscomedian.com. I'm going to be chucking content at you from the luxury of my office van, uh, which if you took part in the Zoom test earlier on, 25 people on the site zoom.us uh, all congregated and uh, I did a little mini gig at them as a tester and tremendous fun it was too. So thanks for being part of that. Um, so if you were a part of that, you will have seen the inside of uh, what I'm not going to call the ComCom van just yet, but it's my little mobile uh, recording studio now parked outside my house and stealing my own own Wi-Fi. There we go. I'm not going to post Amble at you just now. I'm talked out. Uh, I, I've got a lot to say. If you want to listen to that uh, that special episode, the one preceding this one, you will hear my thoughts relevant to, I think I recorded that on the 17th of March, and uh, things may have changed by the time you hear this. Look after yourselves. Please be responsible. Educate yourselves about the best way to look after yourselves and everyone else, all the vulnerable people in our society and whatever nation you're in. And do try to stay calm. Try not to give in to fear. It's a scary time. But try to just... This is a com-com thing. Just take a social risk, you know? Just uh, if you're feeling eggy about singing out of your window, do it anyway and maybe everyone will be singing out their window. All right? Look after yourself. Bye for now. 